where you come to be a part of that, and I'm looking forward to that. Matthew chapter number 24, if you would, please. And uh, what I want to do tonight, folks, is I, I want to preach to you on this topic, signposts of the second coming. Signposts of the second coming. Now, to, to, in order to help you understand where we're going to go tonight, I need just a little bit of help. Would you mind helping me again, brother? You're, you're not uncomfortable coming up here and just being in a little bit close proximity to me, all right? I'd like you to stand right here if you would and face this direction, if you would, please. And then, brother, would you mind helping me just for a second? I'd like for you to come and if you would stand right here and face our brother's best side, his back. I'm just, I'm just joking about that. Just joking about that, all right? Now, I, I want to create an illustration. I love you guys. I really do. Now, I want to create an illustration. The next event on God. God's prophetic timetable is an event that is described vividly in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. By the way, it begins with the, the letter R. It is commonly called the what of the church? Rapture of the church. Now the word rapture is not actually technically found in the Bible, the word rapture. But the context or the concept of a rapture is most definitely found in the Bible. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Bible says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be, and here's where the wording, uh, the concept of the rapture comes from, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Caught up together with them, that is, the dead in Christ, in the air, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, again, I'm not trying to impress you tonight, but I want you to learn something. Caught up together. Three words in English. It's actually one word in the original Greek, and it is a Greek word, harpazo. Harpazo. You say, what does harpazo mean? What is this concept of being caught up together? Literally, literally, the word harpazo means to do this. It means to seize by force. To seize by force. Now, the brother here did not know I was going to do that, all right? I didn't alert him. Otherwise, he could have held on to that easily, and I couldn't have done what I just did. But here's the, the fact, folks. When Jesus comes back in the rapture, we don't know when he's coming. Are you with me? But he's going to come in the clouds of glory. He's going to snatch or seize by force, not horizontally like I did, but he's going to seize us vertically out of this earth, and we're going to forever go home to be with the Lord. Can I hear an amen right there? So the next event that you're representing tonight on God's prophetic timetable is this thing called the rapture of the church. Following the rapture of the church, there's going to come from his shoulder to this brother's shoulder a seven-year period of time on the earth. That seven-year period of time uh, is called, and it begins with the letter T, it's called the what? tribulation period. By the way, at the midpoint of that tribulation, there's going to be a person called the Antichrist that comes on the scene shortly after the rapture, but he's going to be a great seemingly peacemaker. He's going to promise peace and seemingly be able to fulfill that in the most troubled region of the world, and that's the Middle East. However, at the midpoint of that tribulation, Antichrist is going to show his true colors. You know what I'm saying? He's going to go into a temple that will be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. He's going to push the ark of God aside. He's going to declare himself Self to be God and the last three and a half years of that seven years of tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble where literally Antichrist persecutes the nation of Israel mercilessly. However, at the end of that seven year tribulation, Jesus who came here in the clouds in the rapture is gonna come all the way back this second time to the earth and he's gonna plant his feet on the Mount of Olives in the city of Jerusalem and from that point, we're gonna literally be part of his rule 
rule and reign which lasts for 1,000 years. It's called the millennial reign of Christ where Jesus literally, literally rules and reigns from the city of Jerusalem. And here's the awesome thing again. We're gonna rule and reign with him. Can I hear an amen? By the way, Pastor, I've already got my track of land picked out that I wanna rule and reign over. It's called Washington, D.C. Can I hear an amen? I'm gonna need a little help. Any volunteers to help me? All right, I think we got it covered. Anyway, the Lord's gonna sign where we rule and reign, but we're gonna rule and reign with him. Now, here's my point in laying out this timeline. Tonight, the rapture has not yet occurred. So that means this. All of us in this room tonight are on this side of that event. Are you with me? You say, preacher, how do you know that hadn't occurred yet? Because I'm still here. That's how I know it hadn't. And if you're saved, you're still here. So we know this has not occurred. Are you with me? But what we don't know is this. Though we're on this side of that event, what we don't know is how far on this side of that event we are. Preacher, I don't know if we're two years away. I don't know if we're 20 years away. Boy, it's impossible for me to believe that we'd be 20. I don't know if we're 20 minutes away. I don't, not getting cozy here, brother, but I don't know if we're two minutes away. I don't know if we're 20 seconds. I don't know. But this event has not yet occurred, but it's going to occur. Now, I want you to notice something, and I'm going to read in just a second from Matthew 24, beginning at verse number 1, and I'm going to read down through several verses in Matthew 24, and a question is going to be posed to Jesus by the disciples. And the disciples' question is simply this, tell us what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? Many have falsely assumed that that question is a question about this. Jesus, what is the sign of your coming here in the rapture? That is not what they're asking. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Well, number one, the rapture was a mystery to the Jews. That is a truth revealed to the church. Can I hear an amen? And the second reason I know they're not asking about the rapture is there are no signs pointing to the rapture. Jesus said at such a time as you think not, the Son of Man comes in the rapture. Are you with me? If you'd have known what hour the thief was going to come because I'm coming as a thief in the night, you would have been alert and you'd have been ready and prepared for the thief. But see, here's how it works. The thief doesn't announce his coming. He comes when you're not looking for him. Are you with me? Jesus, when he comes in the rapture, is coming like a thief in the night. So when they ask the question, what is the sign of your coming? They're not asking, what is the sign of your coming here? They're asking, what is the sign of your coming here. You say, how do you know that? Listen to the entire question. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the world? Or literally the end of the age. The end of this age. What is the sign of your coming, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom and you rule and reign for a thousand years? What is the sign of your coming here? Now you say, preacher, why are you pointing all that out? Because when Jesus begins answering that question, you're going to notice something. There's some signposts pointing to his coming there at the end of the tribulation that we on this side of the rapture can already see being set up. So here's the deal. If we can already see the signs pointing to Jesus coming here and we're going out of this earth at least seven years, maybe seven years and two months. I mean, we don't, we're going out at least seven years earlier. If we can already see from this vantage point the signs pointing to his coming there, then how close must this be? Are you with me? This has to be near, even at the door. 
Gentlemen, thank you so much. If either of you run for anything, I vote. I promise. Is that good? All right. Now, look at your Bible, if you would, please. Matthew chapter number 24. Let your eyes rest on verse number 1. In Matthew 24, verse 1, the Bible says this. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, writes these words. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. By the way, if I might say this, this was the last time during Jesus' earthly ministry that he would visit the temple, which was actually an entire complex. Any of you have been to Israel and been up on Temple Mount? Uh, by the way, it's about 38 acres up there, and I've been there actually one time, been to Israel twice. First time I was there, it was during the holy month of Ramadan, and because the Muslims controlled Temple Mount, they wouldn't let us up there during the month of Ramadan, so I didn't get to go that time. Two years later, or a year later rather, I was back in Israel and is able to go up on Temple Mount. One of the most amazing things I've ever done in all my life. Well, Jesus is up there and he's visited the temple. Look again at Matthew 24 verse 1. And as he went out, or Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. In other words, Jesus has visited the temple, the entire complex. He's turned, he's walked away. The disciples run up to him. They stop him. They turn him around for to show him, Matthew 24 verse 1, into the verse, for to show him the buildings of the temple. You say, what are they trying to show him? What they're trying to do, preachers, impress Jesus with the beauty of that temple structure. And folks, trust me, by all human standards, it was a beautiful building. But let me ask you a question. How do you impress the creator of the universe with the beauty of a human-built building? He made the world. I was in a town in Tennessee several years ago, preacher, and the pastor said, I'm going to take you and show you a church edifice that cost, you're hearing me correctly, $93 million to build. I said, what in heaven's name could a church be a $93 million on? I went and saw it. It was stunning. It was beautiful. But I want to tell you something. God's not impressed. He made the world. And all things therein, because he's Lord of heaven and earth. So they're going to impress Jesus, they think, with the beauty of that human built building. I want you to know Jesus is not impressed. You say, How do you know that? Look at Matthew 24, verse 2. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Plain English, take a good look at that building you're so proud of. Look what else he says. Verily, truly, I say unto you, there shall not be left here. Here at this structure you're so proud of, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Wow. As soon as he says that, he leaves his disciples again. He walks down through the Kidron Valley. He walks up the other side of the Kidron Valley all the way to the top of the Mount of Olives. You say, how do you know Jesus does that? Look at Matthew 24, verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the only way to get there is to go down through the Kidron Valley, walk up to the top of the, of the Mount of Olives. I've done that, by the way. So Jesus gets to the top of the Mount of Olives. He now can turn and look down on the 38 acres that make up the temple complex. Look at his disciples. They rush to him. Because they're stunned by what Jesus said. There's coming a day when this building you're so proud of is going to be so thoroughly leveled to the ground that not one stone is left sitting on top of another. So look at verse 3 again. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, his disciples came unto him privately, secretly, saying, tell us. When shall these things be? Now, folks, look up at me, friend. Jesus, tell us, when is it going to be that our temple is going to be leveled to the ground? Do you know Jesus is so disinterested in that temple? He doesn't even answer that question. He doesn't tell them that approximately 70 years down the road, Rome's going to come against the city of Jerusalem. Titus, the Roman legion leader, 
is going to conquer the city of Jerusalem. The night before they would go in and conquer the city and literally take the temple down, Titus would give an instruction to his Roman soldiers. He would say, men, we're going into the city of Jerusalem tomorrow. You can rape, pillage, plunder. You can take, confiscate anything you want, but do not touch the pride and joy of the Jewish people. Do not touch their temple. Leave it intact. We're going to claim it in one piece as a trophy to Rome's victory over the nation of Israel. You see, the Romans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Romans. So Titus said, we're claiming that, their pride and joy, in one piece as a victory, a trophy to our victory over the nation of Israel. But see, preacher, the next day, when they went in, they literally took fire inside the temple. They ripped down the tapestries. They overturned the beautiful articles of furniture. And the Roman army piled it all up in the middle of the temple. And they set the entire thing on fire, exited the building, stood outside with folded arms to watch the pride and joy of the Jewish people go up in smoke. As the building is burning from the inside, the Roman army noticed an interesting thing. Oozing out of the mortar joints between these massive pieces of stone that made up the temple, oozing out of the mortar joints and trickling down the outside was a golden substance. Upon closer inspection, the Roman army realized something. The Jews had put so much into that building. Imagine this, so proud of it they were that instead of lining the mortar joints with mortar, they lined the mortar joints with pure gold. Gold is a soft metal. Under the intense heat that's built up inside the building, it's beginning to melt and trickle down the outside. So you know what the Roman army did? Fulfilling Jesus' very words to the letter. They came in with sheer brute Roman strength and they took battering rams and they poked and they pushed and they prodded till they toppled stone off a stone off a stone and leveled the entire structure to the ground in 70 AD for one reason and one reason only, to scoop and scrape the gold off the edges of the stone, pouch it up, carry it back to Rome with them, fulfilling exactly what Jesus said. Not one stone left on top of another. Are you listening to me? You say, preacher, what are you telling us that for? Folks, I want you to understand something. When Jesus says something, you can go to the bank on it. It may not happen tomorrow, next week, next month, or even next year. But if Jesus said it's going to happen, mark my word, it's going to happen. Not one stone left sitting on top of another. Jesus, tell us, when's that going to be? He doesn't tell his disciples what I just told you. But they ask a second question. Look at the end of verse 3. And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And the end... Of the world, or literally the end of the age. What's the sign, Jesus, pointing to when you come and set up your kingdom and you rule and reign for a thousand years? Here at the end of the tribulation, not the rapture. So every sign that Jesus gives pointing to his coming here is a signpost pointing to his coming here, which is seven years earlier. Is everybody with me? If on this side... Of that event, we can already see the signposts. How close must we be to this? Now I want you to look at Matthew 24 and let your eyes rest on verse number 7. Signpost number 1. Look what it says. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Folks, look up at me. I want to explain a couple of terms. Nation shall rise against nation. We read that and here's what we automatically think. Country is going to rise up against country. 
However, I want you to understand the word nation that is used twice in Matthew 24, verse 7. Nation shall rise against Nathan. Nation. It is not referring to a country. In fact, again, not trying to impress you, just want you to learn something. The word that is translated nation in Matthew 24, 7 is the Greek word ethnos. Ethnos. By the way, that is the word from which we get the English word ethnic. Ethnic. So what Jesus is saying is, sign number one, signpost number one of my return is a thing we're watching everywhere in our culture and it's called division racially. Division racially. Ethnos against ethnos. Literally, ethnic group is going to rise up against ethnic group. Preacher, this is a sign pointing to Jesus coming here. The rapture seven years earlier. We're watching this signpost as it develops in front of our very eyes. Are you with me? Folk, I'm telling you, COVID has done a lot of stuff. But what COVID has done more than anything else is afford an opportunity for politicians, for political gain, to scrape a scab off of our national body and then pick at the scab and try to get everybody upset with each other. I mean, try to get you upset against somebody whose skin color is different than yours. By the way, folk, I'm sorry. Please, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. What happened 170 years ago in this country called slavery was a tragedy. But it was 170 years ago. Why do we keep scraping the scab off, preacher? I've never owned a slave. I've never endorsed owning slaves. In fact, some of my greatest friends in all the world, ministry partners, are people who are black. Their skin color is different than mine. My wife is herself Hispanic. Folk, listen to me. We gotta stop this junk and allow the devil to stir us up against each other. It is tragic. If I did this, preacher, tomorrow night, if I came in here and said this, Well, you know what, Pastor Steve, those Japs, those Japs, those Japanese, you know, what was it, 70 years ago, you know, they bombed Pearl Harbor and those people, you know, and I just, every time you met me, I'm talking about the Japanese, the Japanese and what they did to us at Pearl Harbor. You know what some of y'all would do and justifiably so, you'd look at me and say, preacher, that's been seven decades ago, get over it. Get over it. Stop talking about it. And rightly so. Can I hear an amen? We're talking about something 170 years ago. Can I say this? There's nothing I can do. And there's nothing you can do to atone for what happened 170 years ago. The only thing that can atone for that is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen? We got to stop this stuff. And yet the Bible says this. Signpost number one of Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation. We're going out at least seven years ahead of that. Signpost number one is racial division. Division racially. Now, stay with me. There is a second signpost. Not only division racially, look at the next verse or the next part of verse 7, Matthew 24, 7. And there shall be famines and pestilences. And what's the next word? Earthquakes in divers. And the word divers means all sorts of, a multiplicity of places. You say, preacher, what is that? Not only division racially, but number two, destruction generally. Preacher in the signpost pointing to Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be famines and pestilences. By the way, the word pestilence means plagues. We are living in the midst of a plague. Coronavirus, COVID-19, it is not the only one. A couple years ago, you remember when we had the issue with Ebola? Anybody remember this? 
Folks, it's like they're coming with rapid speed against us. All of this is what the Bible talks about in the book of Corinthians where the Apostle Paul said, in the end time, the whole earth is going to groan and travail waiting for its redemption. Can I hear an amen? That's birthing terminology. Grown and travail, birthing. It's like the earth is like a mama getting ready to give birth and the earth is groaning and travailing, waiting for Jesus to come back and make everything that's wrong right. Wow. Destruction, generally. Number three, there is a third signpost. I want you to look at Matthew 24. Let your eyes rest on verse four. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man, would you say the next word out loud? Deceive you. Look at verse 5 of Matthew 24. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall, what's the word again? Deceive. Deceive. Many, look at Matthew 24 verse 11. And many false prophets shall rise and shall, what's the word again? Deceive. Deceive. Many, look at Matthew 24 verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch if it were possible they shall, what's the word again? Deceive the who? Very elect. Now folk, look at me. Division racially. Destruction generally. Number three, deception religiously. Deception religiously. And by the way, this is a sign pointing to Jesus coming here. Preacher, we're on this side of the rapture. But like never before, we're watching this. Folk, I never in my wildest imagination ever dreamed that we'd have the debates we're having in churches that we're having today. Preacher, the Bible says this, there's only one way to heaven and Jesus is it. Jesus did not say, I am a way, I am a truth, and I am a life. I want you to listen to the exclusivity of what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Listen, if people didn't understand, this gets real exclusive. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's as exclusive as it can get. Preacher, there's not many ways to heaven. There's one. And Jesus is it. And friend, I'm sorry. If you don't come that way, you don't get into God's heaven. Here's the problem for your pastor and for me and anybody else who preaches the gospel. We declare an exclusive message in an inclusive culture. See, inclusivity says this. Well, you can't say that there's one way to do anything. You can't say there's one way to heaven. You can't say there's one way to, 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 to conduct marriage. I mean, marriage can be between a man and a woman. It can be between two women, between two men. I mean, if you want to marry your animal, you say, preacher, they're not saying that. Yes, they are. If you want to marry a tree. Preacher, last I heard, there's like, what is it, 156 different genders. Wow. There's not one way to do it. Man, you're, you're narrow. If you say there's one way to do anything. Folk, I'm sorry. I'm as narrow as the Bible is narrow. And there's one way into heaven. Here's what's going to happen, preacher. You and I are going to be in trouble. Brother Brown, you're going to be in trouble. Because the day's coming. In fact, this, this, this entire coronavirus thing has pushed us light years down the road toward what I'm about to say. The day's coming. When you and I are going to be deemed, we're going to be deemed a hazard to culture. By the way, the pastors in California that said, hey, we've been shut down, I think, long enough. We need to reopen our churches because church is essential as, as essential as a liquor store is. In fact, more so. Can I hear an amen? 
By the way, today a pastor from California stood his ground preacher and a federal judge sided with him and he was accused basically by the local authorities of disorderly conduct because he wanted to have his church open. Who would have ever dreamed in America a preacher would be charged with disorderly conduct merely for wanting to allow his people to come in and worship? Are you with me? But see, he's dangerous. He's dangerous. The day's going to come when you guys that preach an exclusive message in an inclusive world, you're dangerous. And we're going to be accused of hate crimes and everything else. Folk, I'm trying to help you understand something tonight. Signpost number three is all around us. Deception. Religiously. Preacher, I never dreamed. I never dreamed the twin, twin idols, and that's really what they are, of critical race theory and intersectionality. I don't know if you understand those terms. Y'all do a little research on them. Critical race theory and intersectionality would make its way into one of the Key, in fact, the key Protestant denomination in the United States of America. And I'm talking about the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody, but folks, won't you listen to me? The president of the SBC has been on a push, a terror, so to speak, to push critical race theory and intersectionality. And part of it is this. Preacher, if you will not admit that we are a systemically racial nation right now, then you are guilty of racism. Now, folk, look, I'm not saying that we didn't have things that happened in the past that needed to be righted, but thank God America's always tried tried to right her wrongs. Can I hear an amen? We have. I'm not saying there's not individuals that still are plagued with the sin, and it is the sin of racism. But I am here to tell you this. We are not a systemically racist nation. Somebody says, well, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not living as a slave to anybody else, but 170 years ago, because they did, you know, America is still a systemically racist country. No, 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 no. I could claim, you know, preacher, because my dad could claim it. My dad grew up in a home where he had nothing. He was very poor. My dad, when he died, pastoring a church, Bible Baptist Church, Hildebrand, North Carolina, the most he ever made in his life was $275 a week. He could claim, I live in a systemically poor country. Because my experience has been that I didn't have much. But that just because he didn't have much doesn't mean the entire country is systemically poor. Are you with me? And just because there's some racist here and there doesn't mean we're all systemically racist. It does not mean that. But here's the pressure. Preacher, you've got to bow. And you've got to bend. And you've got to participate in BLM, Black Lives Matter. And how dare you, how dare you, preacher, have the audacity to say all lives matter or baby lives matter. How dare you say that? The mere fact that you will not take a knee means you're already a racist. A guy asked me on a national radio program, will you ever take a knee to show support for BLM? I said, let me say this first. Of course, black lives matter. Brown lives matter. Yellow lives matter. Baby lives really matter. All lives matter. But I said the problem with BLM is this. That is a Marxist organization. I'm sorry, but it is. And will I take a knee for BLM? The answer is never. Never. What I will do is take a knee for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's where it stops. I stand for the flag. And I kneel for the cross. Can I hear an amen? I stand for the flag. 
And I kneel for the cross. Well, preacher, you're a racist. No, I'm not. But that deception has crept into the church. And we're watching it. Jesus, what's the sign of your coming? The end of the tribulation. And the end of the world. We're going out seven years earlier in the rapture. We're already watching these signposts. Division racially. Deception religiously. Destruction generally. There is a fourth sign. I want you to take your Bible, if you would, please, and turn over to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. I want to show you this, and we're going to be done and head to the ranch. All right, 2 Timothy chapter number 3. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Now, folks, stay with me. This is vitally important. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, writes these words. By the way, it sounds like he's taking a clipping out of a major newspaper in the United States of America today. Look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. This know also that in the last days, the days just prior to Jesus' return, perilous, troublesome times shall come. Can you agree with me, folks? We're living in troublesome times, perilous times. And what follows in the rest of chapter 3, all the way down, if you would notice, all the way down, if you look to verse number 5, the litany of things that are listed there are the fourth signpost. Not just division racially and destruction generally and deception religiously, but there's going to be a demeanor culturally. Culture's going to take on a particular demeanor. You say, preacher, what in the world are you talking about? Now, I want to show you something. As you read beginning at 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, you're going to notice a long list of things. Every one of these things that Paul mentions are words that can fall into one of three categories. They're either actions... Attitudes or affections. Actions, attitudes, or affections. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? Look at verse 2. Characteristic of the troublesome times that are going to occur right before Jesus comes back. Verse 2 says, for men shall be, and here it is, it's an affection. They shall be lovers of their own selves. Now, folks, look at me. We have been pummeled, preacher, for years with this idea. You know what your problem is, preacher? You do not have self-esteem. And what you need to do is you need to learn how to love yourself more. Can I tell you my problem? And your problem really is not that we don't know how to love ourselves. The problem is we love ourselves too much. You know what a guy told me one time, brother? He said, you know, I've I've always been plagued with self-esteem issues. I just don't know how to love myself. I said, well, why would you say that? He said, because when I'm around certain people, I, I just feel like I don't measure up. You know, I don't love myself enough. I said, sir, can I submit to you something just for your consideration? He said, sure, fire it at me. I said, I submit to you that the problem is not that you don't know how to love yourself. You love yourself too much. And that manifests itself when you look at somebody else that maybe you deem for whatever reason, their appearance, their giftedness, their, their bank account, whatever, and you don't measure up to them. You love yourself so much that it makes you feel bad when you don't meet up to the world's expectation of what success is. And that is a symptom not of lack of love. It's a symptom of overtly too much love. Are you listening to me? He looked at me and said, preacher, I never thought about it that way. You know what the Bible says? No man ever yet hated his own flesh. I just hate myself. No, we don't. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord does the church. You say, preacher, I don't love myself. Try this. You ever been up on a roof nailing a 20-penny nail and miss that nail and hit the wrong one, your thumbnail? Ever done that? 
You want to see how much you love yourself? Here's what will happen. The hand that was holding the hammer, it will drop the hammer. It will come over. Or some people... You know what your body's doing? It's ministering to itself in love. I broke an arm playing football, Brother Brown. And whenever I rolled into the end zone and came up, I looked and my arm was broken. I found out later it was dislocated too. You know what this hand right here did? It came immediately and grabbed that wrist. Held on to it. And they took me to the hospital. And they took me in and they said, now the x-ray tech said, we're going to have to x-ray that. I said, help yourself. He said, I'm going to have to stretch your arm out. I said, that's fine. Do that. He pulled like this. He said, you're going to have to let go with the other hand. I said, no way. I thought if I let go, it's going to come on through, you know, my wrist. I said, no. they had to pry these fingers off of that wrist. Otherwise, they'd have taken an x-ray with, you know, fingers and, you know, x-rayed across. You know why? Because this body loves itself. They put a cast on that arm, sent me home. They put the cast on too tight. You know, the hand began to swell up, arm began to swell up a little bit. And the second day into my broken arm, I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked and my fingers were already turning blue because it'd swollen up and the cast was so tight around my fingers, it's cutting off circulation. And I'll promise you this, this hand and the rest of the body didn't say, hey buddy, that's your problem. You get up and go to the emergency room. We're staying in bed. No. You know what the entire body did? We all got up together, right? And the whole body went over to mom and dad's room. And this uninjured hand loves the body. He loves this hand. It knocked on the door. And then the voice got involved when dad said yes. I said, dad, I think we got to go to the hospital. Emergency room. Man, my hand is swollen up. It's hurting. And the entire time this hand is doing this. Oh, it's going to get better. We just got to get to the emergency room. It's going to be okay. We drive down to the emergency room, my hand doing this the whole time. And the guy said, okay, I'm going to have to cut that cast off. And he stretched my arm out and he got the saw. Preacher, I didn't know the, you know, the little sharp saw goes back and forth this way. You know, it's a circle. I thought it spun. You know, if he got too, sm- too far down, he's going to you know, spin. But it just kind of goes back and forth like this. And so, I mean, I pulled back. He said, no, no, no. He said, it doesn't spin. It just kind of jig back and forth. He said, I know how far to do it. And he cut that cast off. And when he peeled the cast off, this hen started going, see, see, see. I told you. I told you. I told you. Loving on that injured hand, right? Because we love ourselves. Are you with me? No man ever yet hated his own flesh nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord does the church by the way men the Bible says so ought men to love their wives as they love their own bodies can they hear an amen Amen. problem sir is you don't love yourself enough we love ourselves plenty wow look again at verse number two for men shall be in the last days lovers of their own selves unprecedented In love of themselves. Look at the next one. Covetous, that's an attitude word. Boasters, that's an action word. Proud, that's an attitude word. Blasphemers, that's an action word. Disobedient to parents, that's an attitude word. By the way, in the end time, young people are going to be unprecedented in their defiance and disobedience of mom and dad. I have never seen anything like this. A disposition culturally. Look at the rest of it. Without, in fact, back up to verse 2. Unthankful, that's an attitude word, unholy. With, here comes another affection word, verse 3, without natural affection. Folks, do you know it is not natural in any sense of the word for a mother to want to abort her own offspring? Preacher, oftentimes the animal, animal world operates better than that. 
You ever watched a mama bear take care of her cub? Why don't human mama bears take care of theirs? Now God will forgive any sin you've committed, including abortion. But folks, something's not right in our culture. It is unnatural. It is unnatural for a man to burn in lust for another man. Not trying to be silly, but I was on the mission field with my former pastor. He's with the Lord now. We are down in St. Vincent. We're standing on the back porch of missionary Allenberry's home and we're looking out at a beautiful Caribbean sea. Sunset, emerald clear water. And I looked at my pastor because Betsy couldn't go on that trip. And I said, how come I have to be here and you have to be here instead of my bride? And he said, well, I was thinking the same thing, Dave. Why are you there instead of my bride? But I sure wasn't going to verbalize it. And then he said this, preacher, I've been tempted by a lot of things, but homosexuality ain't one of them. I said, I'm in 100% agreement. That's not natural. It's not natural. Without natural affection, look at the next one. It goes on and says this. Truce breakers. Don't keep their promises. False accusers. That's an action. Incontinent means lacking in self-control. Fears. Folks, somewhere in the margin of your Bible, you ought to write this in. This is a character of the end time. A dispositional character of the end time. Fierce. It literally means ferocious. Folk during these riots that have afflicted Portland, Oregon, and Chicago, Illinois, and St. Louis, Missouri, and even some here in Raleigh, North Carolina, in our state, maybe a little bit going on in Statesville, a little bit of the protest and so on. Folk, all of this, all of this has taken on a ferocity. The likes of which I've never seen. Preacher, when a 78-year-old man, forgive me, named David Dorn, retired police captain, can work at night defending his buddy's pawn shop, and is there the night those protesters come through, and those protesters can take a gun and at point-blank range shoot him and then video it on their cell phone while the man bleeds to death and dies in front of the... That is ferocious! What has gotten in us? And they burn and they loot. And they destroy. And I want to ask you a question, folks. I'm sorry. But David Dorn didn't get a funeral fit for a king. The other gentleman shouldn't have died the way he did. But they tried to make a saint out of him. He was not a saint. I'm sorry. I'm privy to too much information. He was not. But David Dorn had lived a great life. And he didn't get that because his story doesn't fit the narrative. I guess his black life doesn't matter. I want you to know it matters to me. And it matters to the God of heaven. And it ought to matter to you. Ferocious. Preacher, it's unbelievable. We're talking about a disposition culturally that is going to precede Jesus' return. Look again, if you would, please. 2 Timothy 3, let your eyes rest, if you would, please, on verse 3. Despisers of those that are good. Mm, boy, I'd love to camp out there. Traitors, verse 4. Heady, high-minded. Those are attitude words. Here comes another affection word. Lovers of pleasure. More than lovers of God. Wow. Preacher, forgive me. I'm about done, but folk want you to hear me. I used to wonder, I used to wonder, what in heaven's name can stop? What in heaven's name could stop? 
Someone who sits in a church service like this and hears that Jesus is coming back and here are signposts that are predictive of his return. What could stop people after hearing that and cause them to get up and leave a service like that without getting right with God? Preacher, I wrestled with that. Lord, and then I read this. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You know why you, sir, you, ma'am, you, young man, you, young lady, do you know why people everywhere will not come to Jesus though they see what we're talking about tonight? They understand there's something apocalyptic in the field to what we're going through right now. Would you agree with me? This is different. The earth is groaning and travailing, saying even so, come Lord Jesus. What can cause people to see all that's going on around them and not get right with God? I'll tell you what it is. What the devil's trying to plant in your mind and get into your heart right now. Hey, hang on just a few more minutes. Hang on just a few more minutes. He'll be through. And you can get out to the car and you can take your cell phone and you can surf on your cell phone, find yourself a little bit of pornography to look at. Hang on just a little bit longer. Preacher's going to be done. You can get home, you can turn on your TV and go to cable and you can just scroll the channels till you find something that appeals to your flesh and soak in a little more pleasure. Sitting on the front row of a youth rally, a couple, I thought maybe they were married. They weren't. They were a dating couple. Preacher's daughter and her boyfriend. And I noticed they chuckled and laughed anytime anything remotely close to talking about living a life of purity. Moral purity was said. Man, they just elbowed each other and laughed. And as soon as the service was over, I noticed they left immediately and the pastor, brokenhearted, said, Preacher, my daughter is 18. He said, she's been in heart, gone a long time. Now she's gone physically from our home. He said, I'm praying for her. I'm praying for that boy that she likes. Do you know what I found out later, pastor told me? They went out in the defiance of God, God's word, everything. Went out and were immoral together to soak in more pleasure. And defy the God of heaven. Here's the kicker though. Hmm. Hmm. He was carrying AIDS. And he gave it to her. And folk you listen to me. Young people hear me please. You're trying to scare me preacher. Wish I could. I love you enough. I wish I could scare you to live in right. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Wow. Now the daughter comes running back to daddy who opened his arms and welcomed her in. Just like the father did the prodigal. But now she's dealing with the consequences of her pleasure pursuit. Folk, I'm sorry, but we've had this plague called HIV AIDS known in America since at least 1984. And you know what people keep doing? They keep pursuing it, preacher. They just try to find, forgive me, not trying to be gross or graphic, they just try to find a safe way to go about it. Safe sex. The only safe sex is within the confines of one man and one woman in the sacred bonds of matrimony. Can I hear an amen? That's safe. 
Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Listen to this. But whoremongers and adulterers, God not may, God will judge. Why does God take marriage so seriously? Because of what it pictures. It is a picture of he, the bridegroom, and his awesome relationship with the love of his life, the church. And preacher, when people defile that image, they mar the picture. Of God's great love. And folk, God doesn't take that lightly. I'm sorry he doesn't. Wow. Lovers of pleasure. More than lovers of God. Look at the last part of that verse. Mm. Verse 5. Having a form. That is, in the last days, there's going to be a disposition culturally. And part of it is having a form of godliness, but denying the, what's the next word, the what thereof? Power thereof. From such, turn away. Stay as far away from that as you can. Now I want to do something tonight. Brother, here on the front row, I want you to help me again. Okay? Let me just ask a question first. What, what is that? Okay, all right. Now, would you take your left hand and just put it up inside? By the way, Technically, that's not a hand. It's a picture of an outline of a hand. Everybody with me? By the way, I put my mitt down there and took a marker, a sharpie, and went around my fingers and around my thumb down to the wrist here and here. That's an outline of yours truly's hand. Now, it's not a hand. It's the outline thereof. Now, I want you to take your left hand and put it up inside the outline just like that. Perfect. Now, other than the sensation of the paper touching your skin, do you, do you feel anything? And what I mean by feel, do you feel any warmth? Do you feel the outline gripping your hand back? Other than just the sensation of your skin touching the paper, do you feel anything? No. No. Because this is not real. Now, would you do this? And don't hurt me. Okay? Put your hand right there. Do you feel me gripping down? Do you feel warmth? Do you feel something responding to you? Yes, sir. Sure, because that's real. Are you with me? It's just an outline. When the Bible says in the last days they're going to have a form, do you know what the word form literally means? It means the outline. Preacher, this is what scares me about churches. There'll be people who will sit in churches, and you know what? They look just like the genuine article. They look just like it. But were it not for grace, as our sister sang about tonight, I can tell you where I'd be, and it sure wouldn't be in church. However, in the last days, there's going to be people that know the language, can smile, even say amen at the right time. But they're an outline only. There's no power. No power to overcome sin. No power to overcome the devil. No power to say no to the pleasures of this world. Folks, can I tell you this? A surefire indicator that you need Jesus is when you genuinely are powerless to overcome sin and temptation. Because Jesus gives us His power to overcome temptation. Can I hear an amen? It doesn't mean we don't ever make a decision to yield, but we don't have to live dominated by sin. Let me explain and I'm done. Just a couple of weeks ago, we, I was in the Northwest, flew out there, used to for years drive out there. 
Pastor, uh, when we drove out there the first time, we got off on the wrong road and we were trying to get over to Eugene, Oregon, but the road we got home was the old road that took us up over what's called the Sisters Mountains in Bend, Oregon. Anybody ever been to Bend, Oregon or the Sisters Mountains? They're volcanic mountains. Preacher, they're beautiful. It's some of the most stunning scenery I've ever seen in my life. As we're driving through the Sisters Mountains, I'm looking and my wife, she's over in the passenger seat of a little car we had at that time, a little 84 Honda Accord. And we had everything we owned in that little 84 Honda Accord. I mean, we had diapers for Rachel. We had all my clothes for three months, all of Bessie's clothes for three months. We had a single guy named Jeff that was traveling with us as a singer. He had all his clothes. Uh, he wanted to bring a keyboard. Okay, so we stuck the keyboard in the trunk and piled everything, you know, around it, you know. And I can tell you this, it was an accord, but let me tell you, you can be in one accord and not be in one accord, if you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I mean, it was just, I mean, we we're crammed in there with something else. And we're driving, you know, over the Sisters Mountains, this windy road. I remember looking over at my wife. She was trying to sleep. Every time I'd go around turn her head go that way next turn her head go that way and finally she just got up and she said I can't sleep I said honey you don't need to look at this scenery and she starts surveying the scenery along with us all of a sudden as we're driving I noticed that there was an insect inside our 84 Honda Accord it's called a fly okay had one in the car tonight coming down the road trying to get the window down you know he went out okay well this day we're driving through there and there's a fly in the car now forgive me I know this is silly this is crazy but I, I just think differently okay I look down at my speedometer and we're clicking through the sisters mountains on this two lane road at about 50 miles an hour and I'm trying to remember back to my physical science days and I'm thinking now wait a minute I, I remember you know flies can do a lot of stuff but their little wings won't flap, flap fast enough for them to go this way 50 miles an hour but this fly's doing it. He's going that way at 50 miles an hour while simultaneously doing this, going back and forth this way. Do you know it is impossible for a fly, number one, to go 50 miles an hour down the road, but it's certainly impossible for him to go 50 miles an hour that way while simultaneously going back and forth this way. But this fly's doing it. And I'm thinking, what an amazing insect this is. We need to get him over to Ripley's, believe it or not. I mean, this is amazing. You say, preacher, what is wrong with you? Of course, he can go 50 miles an hour that way while simultaneously doing this because he's in the car. Right? Preacher, that hit me. And I got to thinking, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That which you and I cannot do until we're in Christ is now possible when we're in Him. And that is we can live godly. Can I hear an amen? Wow. Wow. Forgive me, brother. This is sadistic, isn't it? I watched that fly 50 miles an hour this way. I thought, I wonder what happens if I get the window down and get him out. So I hit the button. He was over by the rearview mirror. I'm driving, just put my hand up, pushed him this way. He didn't fly out. He just got close enough to the suction at 15 miles an hour, caught him. And he went out. Brother Jones, have you ever wondered what happens to a fly who's going 50 miles an hour this way and he can't any longer do that? You know, what does he do? He hit something? I don't know. I just, he's out. And now he can't do what he was doing. Folks, listen, do you know that can never happen to you spiritually if you've been saved? It's called sealed by the Holy Spirit of redemption. You know what happens? 
When we're in Christ, we're inside. And the windows go up and the Holy Spirit puts the lock on and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And we can't ever be out of Him if we're in Him. Can I hear an amen? And that which we cannot do normally, we can now do supernaturally. Not in our strength, but in His. Folk, I want to ask you something. Do you really know the Lord? Have you really been born again? Do you see the signposts? They're all pointing to Jesus coming here when He sets up His reign. We're over here. We don't know how far on this side of the rapture, but we're on this side of it. And we're watching these signposts go up. Pointing to His coming way over there. Preacher, I would say this. This has got to be near. Even at the door. Now stay with me one final thing. I have a dear doctor friend, and again, please don't misunderstand. I totally appreciate, I do, I totally understand, totally appreciate. If you wear a mask and you have a reason to do it, I totally understand. I totally understand. Please don't think what I'm about to say is putting down anybody that wears That's not it. But my doctor friend, her name is Twyla Braze. She is recognized as one of the top 100 medical professionals in the nation. She has a website called Citizens Council for Health Freedom. I would encourage you to go there. She does updates that are powerful. cchfreedom.org is the website. Twyla is a believer. And what she said is this. She said, my concern with masks are two. Number one, they're not designed to stop a virus. They're designed really to stop bacteria. A virus is a lot smaller than bacteria. So she said, what my concern is, is that we begin to rely on the mask and we do all kinds of other dangerous things like not washing our hands enough because the mask is now our sole defense. Is everybody with me? She's got a point. She said, the other thing is this. If you could magnify that mask... And then magnify a virus, she said it would be literally like trying to stop with a mask, like trying to stop a piece of sand from going through a chain link fence. They're really not designed for that. He said, but, she says, but the other concern is this. If they mandate, a national mandate that you have to wear a mask, she said anytime the government can separate you from something that is essential to your existence, which is called air, oxygen, yeah. If they can separate you from that and the free intake of it, then they can force you to do other things. Like, take, take, take a vaccine. Now, folks, forgive me. There's a young lady from down in Atlanta, Georgia. She works in a co-op down there. And she's produced a tremendous video. I don't know if she knows the Lord or not. I know she's wearing a, a cross and her necklace around her neck, but that really doesn't mean anything. She's making no religious point about her video. But preacher, she's spot on. She said one of the deployment mechanisms that is being suggested for these vaccines that they're rushing to get out, whether it's Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and there's a, a bunch of other ones all in a foot race trying to get the vaccine first, and there'll be various vaccines but they're trying to get it out now. She said one of the ways and one of the problems is getting it deployed to a lot of people. Here's what's been suggested. Now, folk, listen to me. This is amazing. They will actually mail the vaccine to you and you administer it to yourself. Now, when I heard her say that, I thought, I'm not putting those. I don't like shots, period. I'm not sticking something in me. 
And she must have been anticipating what everybody was thinking. And she said, look, it's not a shot. She said, they're going to send you a little patch. And the little patch, get this, will be applied right here to your hand. And it has little pixels on the bottom of it. And you put it on your hand, it sticks. You peel the top off. And when you remove, remove the adhesive part, it all of a sudden activates the vaccine. And it begins to go into your body. She said, now you will wear, according to the proposal, you'll wear the little patch for two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. And then that can come off. Get this, preacher. She said, but it does this. It leaves not a visible to the human eye, but it leaves kind of, the way she described it, a tattoo marking on the skin. And she said, here's what they're proposing. That you download an app on your phone. And when you go into an establishment, restaurant, and they'll say, well, have you been vaccinated? And what you'll do is you'll take your phone and you'll run it across it. And the app on your phone will pick up that you've had the little vaccine because it picks up that little invisible tattoo on your skin. And they say, you're safe. Come on in. You know, Revelation 13 says Antichrist is going to cause all men to take a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. And they won't get this buy or sell unless they have the mark or the number of the name of the beast. Now, folk, listen to me. We are closer than we've ever been. See, I used to wonder what could possibly motivate people to line up to take whatever it is that has the mark. Are you saying the, 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 little, the little vaccine is the mark? No, I'm just saying the technology and the development of the American people in their psyche to be willing to take it. They've scared us to that point. What could possibly make us come to that place? Fear. Fear. Give it to me because I've got to buy and sell. They won't let me in Walmart without it. And by the way, preacher, though it's the governors that have made the mandates, this is really being enforced by the local store owners. Have you seen the signs? No mask, no service. No mask, no service. And as my friend Twala says, if they can force you to wear that to separate you from something essential to your survival, then they can force you to do this. And I'm convinced the day's going to come when they say, no vaccine? Sorry, you're too dangerous to let you in. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Bill Gates. All of that's true. Mr. Fauci and Mr. Gates... They've been in collusion for a long time. Now, folk, hear me. If you don't know Jesus, I suggest you come to Him. And if you do know Jesus, I suggest you get very serious about serving Him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, would you speak to us tonight? Lord, Your Word prophetically is like reading tomorrow's newspaper. And Father, I pray you'd speak to every heart. If there's a man, woman, young person in this room that does not know you as Savior, Father, I pray tonight would be the night when they would come to you before it's eternally too late. And then, Father, help those of us who do know you. Father, help us to get incredibly serious about reaching out to a lost world all around us that does not yet know you. And Father, help us to forget ourselves, put ourselves aside, 
and start living for a cause bigger than just us. And start telling a lost world, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates. When we start telling them, you've got, to, you've got to get ready for the return of the Lord. And Lord, they may mock us, that's okay. Help us to be courageous and loving. Courageous and loving enough to tell the truth in a world devoid of it. And Father, for what you do, I'm going to thank you and praise you. Now friends, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I want to ask you just a couple of candid questions. Again, I'm not asking, do you think? Are you reasonably sure? Well, Dave, I'm pretty much convinced. I'm not asking that. I'm asking tonight, do you K-N-O-W? Do you know that if the rapture were to occur tonight in the next five minutes, if Jesus were to come back in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and snatch out of this earth only those that know Him as Savior, which will happen one day. But if it were to happen in the next five minutes tonight, do you know, do you know, do you know that you'd go up to be with Him? Now if you can say, yes, Dave. Yes, Dave, as God is my witness, I don't have a doubt about where I'm going to spend eternity. I know I'm willing to stake my eternal future on my answer because that is what you're fixing to do. I know I'd go up if Jesus came back tonight in the rapture. If that were to happen and you know you'd go up because you know you've been saved, please don't look to see what someone else does. Answer this for yourself. If you know you'd go up if Jesus came back tonight, would you simply do this? Would you lift your hand, hold it as high as you possibly can? If you do not know, just keep your hand down. Be honest. Dave, I know. I know. Thank you. You may put your hand down. Bless your heart. What a beautiful sight. Christian friends, I want to ask you, please pray. Silently but sincerely, please pray. Second question. Is there anyone in the room tonight, could be several, but is there anyone that would be willing to say, preacher, here's the deal, I do not know. I am not 100% certain that if Jesus came back tonight in the rapture that I'd go up to be with Him, but I'm concerned about that. And friend, you need to be. You need to be. This is a reality. Jesus is coming. In fact, I'm surprised we're still here. Is there anyone that would say, Brother Dave, here's the deal. I don't have the assurance that if Jesus came back tonight, I don't have the assurance I'd go up to be with him, but I'm concerned about it. And I'm concerned enough that preacher, I'd like you to pray for me. Friend, I'd love to have that privilege of praying for you, not by name. Even if I know your name, I'm never going to call it out and embarrass you. God knows your name and everything else about you and he loves you. But I'd like to have the privilege of praying for you that before it's too late, you'll get your eternal destiny settled. Is there anyone in the room that right now, while I'm the only one looking, you would lift your hand and by doing that you're saying, Dave, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I'd go up if Jesus came back tonight in the rapture, but I'm concerned about it. Please, preacher, don't call my name, but remember me in prayer. If that's you, would you lift your hand long enough for me to see it anywhere in the building tonight? Anywhere in the building tonight, preacher, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure I'd go up. But I want you to pray for me. Anyone at all, I'm going to wait just a moment. Pray for me, Dave. I'm not sure I'm saved. All right, one final question. Christian friends, please hear me out. A fellow evangelist friend said to me this. Preacher, you know a lot of churches, and boy, they are. I've been in several. Thank God you guys aren't doing that here. 
They stop you at the front door and they aim a thermometer at your forehead and they take your temperature. I guess there's a time and place for that. But my friend made a great observation. He said, Dave, isn't it amazing that some churches are more concerned about your, your physical temperature than they are about the spiritual temperature of the church body? In fact, he said, the Holy Spirit's so hot, he's not welcome in most churches. That's true. Thank God that's not true here at Calvary Baptist. Can I hear an amen? amen. I want to ask you something. Jesus is coming back. How long has it been since you with your lips as a Christian told anybody, anybody that doesn't know the Lord, how long has it been since you with your lips told anybody that doesn't know Jesus the Savior how they could know Him? Hey, you're saved, praise God. There's a myriad of people around us that are not. How long has it been? Let me, let me put a time frame on it, just, just kind of to give us a, a working point. If you've taken your lips and told someone who does not know Jesus how they could know Him, and you've done that in the last 10 days, you've shared the gospel with someone, told them how they could get saved, whether they accepted the offer of Jesus for salvation or whether they rejected it, at least you with your lips have told them. And you've done that in the last 10 days. If you've done that without looking around to see what someone else does, would you lift your hand, preacher, I've told somebody that doesn't know Jesus how they could know Him in the last 10 days. Hold it up in just a moment. Thank you. Better than most churches. Folk, I love you here. God is so good at Calvary. You're way better than most churches. But folk, hear me. 14 people in the last 10 days have told someone who doesn't know the Lord how they could know Him. That's better by far than most if I ask that question. But friends, there's way more than 14 believers in this room. Now with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask that you do this. Just simply stand to your feet. With your head bowed and your eyes closed. I want to lay a proposition before God's people. Jesus is coming. He's coming. Here are the signposts of the second coming. Folk, we're here because God's left us here to reach other people. That's the only reason we're here. Everything else pales into insignificance by comparison. My proposition that I want to put before you is simply this. Of all those who moments ago raised their hand and said, I know Jesus is my Savior, how many of you would be willing to say, Lord, I really get this tonight? I see the signposts. They're abundantly clear. Division racially, deception religiously, destruction generally, a disposition culturally. I see it as plain as the nose on my face. 
But Lord, because I do see it, tonight I'm not afraid, I'm not ashamed to tell you. I'm going to do my best. Folk, hear me out, please. I'm going to do my best every seven days. Every week, Lord, every seven days, I'm going to do my best. If you'll help me, and trust me, He will. I'm going to do my best to tell at least one person every seven days how they can know you as Savior. By the way, folk, we can all do that. We all must do that. Now, as the pianist plays, if you'd be willing to say, Lord, I'm not afraid nor ashamed to tell you tonight, if you'll help me, and He will, I'm going to do my best. Listen to the wording. I'm going to do my best every seven days to tell at least one person how they can know you as Savior. If you'd be willing to commit to that, I want to invite you to do something tonight. Would you step out from where you're currently standing and would you come down around this altar and would you commit to that before the Holy God of Heaven, the one who saved you? God bless you. Lord, I'm going to do my best. It's all God expects. Every seven days, I'm going to do my best to tell at least one person that does not know you how they can know you. I'm going to do my best, Lord, every seven days to tell at least one person how they can know you. I'm going to do my best, Lord. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best, Lord, to tell one person every week how they can know you. Now, folks, do this tonight. As you're praying, the Lord's going to no doubt bring some people's faces and their names to your mind. Start praying for them right now. And I'm going to pray with you for all of those. I don't have to know every name. God knows every one of them because He gave them life physically. He wants to give them life spiritually and eternally. Pray for them. And then when you rise from your prayer, put feet to your prayers and plan a time to talk to those that God's already laid on your heart. Father, I pray, because Lord of the days we're living in, troublesome days to be sure, but awesome days to be alive in serving you. Father, I pray that you'd help us to speak up and speak out boldly. Help us, oh God, to be unafraid and unashamed to be a witness for you. And Father, for every person whose name, face has come to mind, be it, Lord, on the minds and hearts of those in front of me or in my own heart and mind, Father, give us the courage and help us to cultivate a game plan to go take the gospel to them. Father, prepare the way ahead of us. And Father, as a result of commitments made tonight, may many be born into your family and be swept into your kingdom. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you for it. And Father, I pray it would be soon when that last one is saved and your bride is complete and you say to your son, go get my church and we're called out of this earth and home to be with you forever. Till that time comes, may we be faithful to you. And Father, we'll thank you for what you do. Bless now as Pastor Steve comes to close this service. God, him is so you, you so awesomely done each night already. And Father, may we never, never, never forget that which you've done in our hearts tonight. 
And then, Lord, prepare us for tomorrow night. And, Lord, I pray, I pray we'd hear and heed what your word says to us as your church tomorrow night. And Jesus will give you glory for that. In your name we do pray.